0: Father, I thank you for this uh, beautiful evening together. What a joy to come together, have a meal together, um, fellowship, and then spend some time in the Word together. Uh, the perfect Word of God. And we thank you that you've given this. It's such a great gift. We we can line our lives up according to your Word. We know it's not going to change. It's not going to uh Uh, be invalid over time. It is your perfect word. It transcends time and cultures and and life, Lord, and and we thank you for it. Lord, as we deal with a a hard subject, uh, Korah's rebellion tonight, may we learn what you love and what you hate. May we learn how protective you are of your gospel and how protective you are of the one way to get to you, and we ask that you show us those great things tonight. Remind us of those truths in the scriptures. I do thank you for all that are here. We remember those who went through surgeries today and many are in the hospital. We pray that you would bring them home soon and return them to us, Lord. Others have been through treatment this week. Lord, please strengthen them. Ask us to remember them, Lord, each of us in our prayers and our, our reminders of, of those who are, are going through hard times, Lord. Let us not forget them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I entitled the sermon, A God Who Protects His Gospel. I don't know if you think of Korah's rebellion in that light, but I trust as I go through this, as I work my way verse by verse and section by section down through here, that you'll keep in mind that God is a protector of his gospel. And see if you can see where I'm going with this, and I think it'll be evident. As we turn to the scriptures, we find Moses once again returning to the historical narrative, right? This is the flow of the nation of Israel making their way back to the promised land. and God has restated his promises. He's taught them in chapter 15, this new generation that will go in. Here's how I want you to worship me. Uh, He's reminding them, I am going to bring you in. And we... We're reminded of that truth a couple of weeks ago. But in chapter 15, one of the things we hit, and I just want to remind ourselves of this, is he hit very clearly on the difference of the sin of innocence, which would have been the younger generation, and the sin of willful sin, which would have been the older generation. And he went into great detail in chapter 15 on that. We spent quite a bit of time to see the difference of that. And it was an important lesson as we studied that together. But now... Now we get into chapter 16, and I believe what God is going to do is he's going to say, now I'm going to show you a sin, an example of sin, of willful sin, presumptuous sin. And so Korah and others now come to the center here. Out of all the things I was thinking about this passage this week, I said, Lord, out of all the things that the Spirit of God could have put on Moses' heart and moved him along to record in these 40 years of wandering, 40 years, he puts the heart, put it on his heart to write this, the rebellion of Korah. So you've got to think about that. You've got to go, wow. Out of all the things that he could have told us about in those 40 years, he wants us, God wants us to know Korah's rebellion. And so it's recorded here for us and it's illustration of defiant sin. Let's look back with me just a couple of verses, chapter 15, verse 30 through 31, because I think this is what this is coming off of. The Bible says here, but the person who does anything defiantly, that's that idea of trespass of sin, right? You know the boundary, but you don't care. You go across that boundary, even though you know what God has said, you defy God and you go across it. So anyone who has that, defiant sin here whether he is a native or an alien that one blasphemes the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandments and that person shall be completely cut off and his guilt will be on him and wow are we going to see a cutting off today in this passage let me put it this way a swallowing up and if that isn't a cut off I don't know what it is now it is difficult to know the time frame here. Uh, Numbers is a book that takes a quite a few chapters and blows through 40 years of them wandering in the wilderness. Deuteronomy slows down in just the months before going in, and there are a bunch of sermons of Moses preaching to the nation as he prepares that next generation to go in. Uh, so it's moving rapidly. And it's difficult to know the time frame, but what we do know is the Holy Spirit placed this passage for us to learn and understand the warnings that come with this. Now, what is recorded in this account is rebellion against Moses and Aaron by three kind of sections of people, and I'll get into that in the first verse here. But but ultimately, their rebellion is against God. Remember that. It's always against God. Moses and Aaron are in the way, but it's against God, and it's really... What I began as I began to look at this passage really fresh to preach it, you know, all the way through it, is I said, wow, this is a rebellion against God's one-way divine plan of salvation. That's what this is. And God will have nothing (laughs) to do with those people who try to come a different way. It's, and this is what this story is about. So let me give you seven thoughts. I know that seems a lot. It's a long chapter, but I'm going to try to move through these rapidly. First, a warning with eternal ramifications. Look with me at the first seven verses. Now Korah, the son of Izar, a son of Korath, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, and the son of Elab, and on, on, the son of Peleth, the son of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 uh, leaders of the congregation, chosen, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them. The Lord is in their midst, so why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all of his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself. And even the one who he will choose, he will bring near to himself. Do this, take a censer for yourself, Korah and all your company, and put fire in it, and lay the incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Here we see a rebellion led by really three different groups. It's Korah who is uh, of the Korathites, this is part of that Levitical tribe. You remember they they had things, each tribe of, even each family that was within the Levitical tribe had things to do, right? The Korathites, they, they carried the furnishings, as you remember. Now, this might be where some of the problems are coming from. God did not trust them to look upon the furnishings. They could only carry them. So Korath and his family would come But they could not touch or come near the poles until Aaron and his sons had come in and covered it. They were not even allowed to look at it. And so possibly there's envy and jealousy starting to begin even in their roles there. Now there's another group, Dathan and Abraham, sons of Elab, and also on the sons of Pilath, the sons of Reuben. Now that's an interesting group. Reuben is who? He's the firstborn of Jacob. So now you have a bunch of firstborners. They're, they're given rights to all that their father has. There could be some issues there. We'll think about that a little bit. And then you also have another group, these 250 prominent leaders within the nation of Israel. And so there's this clear rebellion going on, and it's got strands. And so you got Korath, who are Levites. You have sons of Reuben, which are the firstborn of Jacob. And you have these 250 prominent influential leaders. These are all men of privilege. And if there's any wealth as they're walking around the desert out there in the wilderness, these men probably have it. And they've all been given unique positions of authority within the nation of Israel. Now, with Korah, it seems there's a lack of contentment with his role. And what begins to breed within Korah, and most likely these other men, is this jealousy and envy against the family of Aaron particularly. And that Aaron was set apart with certain duties and certain privileges of the priesthood, and and this is really key, that he was going into the presence of the Lord and they were not. And this jealousy and envy begins to grow here with the leaders of the tribe of Reuben and these other 250 men of position, their complaint seems to be against Moses. They don't like that Moses has been given the authority and the respect that came with that. And so jealousy and envy are our true nature of, of, of fallen men, right? That's a danger we all fight. Jealousy of somebody else, always wanting to keep up with the... Uh, sorry if there's any Joneses in here. <laughs> I always feel bad for the Joneses when we say that that's a problem, isn't it? It's a problem to this day. We long for something we don't have. We envy after something. We become jealous for something that God has not given us. And this was developing in the heart of these men. And it was revealing this dark aspect of fallen man that even in this Great nation that God has done these amazing miracles to bring them out. He's providing for them. Bread falls out of heaven every day for them. He gives them all their needs. Their shoes don't wear out, the Bible tells us. And yet now envy and jealousy for a position that God did not give them begins to grow in them. And I think this is an important lesson for us believers in the church as well. These are things that can happen. And so as we look at this, you begin to realize that there's two different groups but have the same sin, but they're pointed towards different people. There's this visible sin against Moses and Aaron, but yet there's this inner desire for power and strength. And this sin gathers, gathers people together. When When there's rebellion in the heart, you always look for someone who will rebel with you. And, and we've seen this with Christ, right? Pharisees and Sadducees disdained each other. They didn't like each other at all. Pharisees loved to live out the law outwardly. The Sadducees loved to question their doctrine. They questioned the resurrection. They questioned everything about angels. They butted heads constantly until the man, Lord Jesus Christ, came on this earth. And they became very strange bedfellows. And they worked together for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You also see some of the other people that would unite, Pilate and Herod. When you study Pilate and Herod, you realize these men hated each other because they were so envious of power and and desirous of authority, they hated each other until Jesus Christ came along. And they worked together to... Uh, rejected Jesus Christ to be a part of his judgment that fell upon him, all based on the lies of the religious leaders of Israel. Well, the church isn't free of this type of stuff, is it? Sometimes legalistic-minded people will often use others to try to get their way, and, and, and this hurts churches, right? We see this. We've all been raised in churches where we have seen these things, and it becomes a problem. Look again with me at verse 3. Notice what they do here. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron. So there, there has to be some kind of networking going on here. They've, they've assembled together. They've talked through these things, all the things they don't like, and they've come together. And notice the statement that they said. They, and they said to them, You have gone far enough. And this is what they're saying to Moses God's chosen man, the leader of the nation of Israel. And and he says, you've gone far enough. Now look at this. For all of the congregation are holy, every one of them. Really? Hmm. Been a lot of people dying. <laughs> We've seen it all the way through the desert so far. There's bodies laying all over the place. But according to these guys, everybody's holy. Every one of them. Then the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? Well, here we see their mindset they see in their mind that moses has gone too far it's a clear rejection of god-given authority here and in this statement of their holiness this is an errant view of man right we know that the bible teaches us that all men are sinners right uh that Paul quotes the psalmist in chapter 3 of Romans, and he says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understand. There is none who seek after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And yet here they say, look, we're all holy, every one of them. Now, why would they make that statement? Because you had to be holy to be in the presence of God. Now we begin to understand that they're after a certain position. They're after something. They want what Aaron's doing. They see the show, man. They've seen Moses on the mountain and the fire and all that stuff. They've seen that kind of glory come down and fill the temple and and Aaron going in there and minister before the Lord. And now there becomes this envious, jealous desire to be in the presence of God. They knew that Aaron had something they didn't. And yet they all want in. They all say, look, we are all holy, every one of us. Why can't we do that? But this text reminds us that there's one way to God, and that way was through Aaron in the Old Testament. He is representing, he's pointing forward to the greater high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is not multiple high priests that bring us into the presence of God. There was one. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, this is what happens, and this is what happens in Christianity often, is pretty soon, well, you know, your guys' view on coming to God is really narrow. I'm a good guy, man. I've done this. I've done that. You guys preach on all these things. So there's always pressure on the gospel, isn't there? And we see this here. We see the pressure on that narrow way. We, too, are holy. Why can't we do what Aaron does? Well, here's a simple answer. Nobody can do what Jesus did. And this is all a picture that's flowing forward, right? We know our biblical theology. The Old Testament's all pointing, all working towards the greater person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the greater high priest. He's the greater prophet. He's the greater king. This is what Hebrews is about, right? And so... When we see Aaron, even though he is a sinner, he's ceremonially cleansed. He's wearing everything that God wants him to wear, reflecting God's glory as he walks into the presence of God. And now this is desired to be for everyone. And yet God says there's only one who can mediate between God and man. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, and Aaron is reflecting that. There's claims here that this entire congregation is holy, And they have the right to do what Aaron does. Well, Aaron's own sons didn't do it right. I mean, remember those guys. The Bible says they offered strange fire. What does that mean? They came to God a different way than he told them to come. And what happened to them? It's death. In any time, now, in all of eternity, anyone who comes to God Other than through the one way God has established, there is only Sheol that waits for them. And that's what we'll see in this text. Notice they say that the Lord is in their midst. Really? Well, in chapter 14, if you turn back there at the end, after their great sin of rejecting the word of God, they try to do things again in their own strength. You Remember this? Verse 40 the morning, they rose up and said, well, let's go take it. Let's go take the hill, right? Moses said, don't do that. God's not going with you. I'm not going with you. You don't have the presence of God. No, we're going anyway, right? See, see, he said they think he's in his midst, and he's not. Verse 41, Moses said, why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord? When it will not succeed. Do not go up, verse 42, or you'll be struck down by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. It's clear this was a group of people in rebellion that did not have the Lord among them. And yet they say, the Lord is in our midst. We're all holy. Notice the next phrase as you turn back to chapter 16, verse 3. Why have you exalted yourself above the assembly of the Lord? That's a a great charge. That's a really strong charge against Moses and Aaron. Korath was a Levite. He had great authority. And with him were the firstborn of Israel. They had great authority. And the leaders of the tribes were there. And these 250 prominent men, they're all there, all given great roles within the nation. But they point to Moses and say, why have you exalted yourself? It's really easy to say that about someone, right? You can make a charge against something, but that's not true, right? And I think in order for the rebellion to be effective, there there's to be prominent people who desire equality and want and want more power and authority. We see this all the time, right? And it always has a self righteous part that plays in a rebellion against God's divine plan. It isn't hard to watch the news and there's another march and there's another rally and there's none of these things and pretty soon you hear things like your rights are being infringed upon, your, your leaders assume too much authority, you are being deprived, you, you deserve more. And we're going to give it to you if you vote for us. Right? Peels on that self-righteous, peels on that sinful desire of envy and jealousy. These charges aren't true, they're trumped up, they're unfounded. Moses and Aaron were not, ta- we're not talking, uh, Moses and Aaron were not taking uh, too much upon themselves. They were doing exactly what God told them over and over. We see that Moses did exactly what God had told them over and over. We see that phrase throughout the Pentateuch. God had called them and placed them into this position. And if anybody was humble, it was Moses. For in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, the Bible says, Now man, the man, Moses, was very humble more than anyone on the face of the earth. It's quite a statement. In fact, he doesn't even want the job. You remember that? Back in Exodus? Yeah, I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I killed a guy and I left. I'm not going back. He may make an excuse after excuse. I can't talk. I can't stand in front of people. I'm going to give you Aaron. And God graciously gives him Aaron as a helper. And we know that Moses isn't sinless, right? We'll see that in coming chapters, you know, kind of take the law in his hands and strike the rock a couple times and take the word of God and put it upon himself. And that cost him the opportunity to go into the promised land. We'll explain what that looks like when we get to that chapter. But here, this statement, when you start to look at this, at the root of the sin is this jealousy of Korah and these others, and jealousy is an awful sin because it rejects the authority of God's decisions to call and place leaders where he so desires. And no man uh, will last very long when you're jealous of what God has do- done. We saw this in Corinth. One of the things about Corinth, that there was all kinds of problems. There was envy and jealousy and infractions that were going on in that in that church as well, and so Paul writes that great chapter, chapter 12, and he gives the imagery of the body and the hands and the feet and the legs and ears and the mouth and nose and all those parts that make up one body and all work together, given by the Spirit of God the different gifts for that role. And think about this, most of the body parts are covered up. And so there is much of the body that is unseen. And this is probably what's going on in this text those who didn't feel like they were unseen. In fact, we don't even get to see the furniture. we got to come in before it's, it's all covered up. Aaron gets to do all this. We just pack this heavy stuff. Who are we? And they're not content with what God had asked them to do. And I love that the fact that God, when he saves us, he places us in a body and he uniquely gives every one of us gifts to serve the body of Christ. And we talk about this greatly when we're going through that passage. And when we don't serve the Lord with our God-given gifts, we handicap the body of Christ. We limp along and we don't fulfill what God has called us to do. I cut my teeth raising on J. Vernon McGee. I was raised on him. I remember laying under in my mom's long stereo, you know, long stereos and they had record players in them and everything, and I'd lay under there and listen to Jay Vernon McGee, so I just curiously, I thought, I wonder what Jay says on this passage, and sure enough, he had a whole paragraph on the abuse of jealousy, and here's, I just want to read to you what he said. Jealousy motivates great many people who are troublemakers in the church. These people push themselves into places of leadership. They attempt to usurp a gift which they do not have at all. They have no particular ability to do the things they are attempting God never called them to do that, but their jealousy desire, their, 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 their jealousy desires uh, for places that cause hurt to the church to gain a position they were never asked to do. And this is what was happening with Korah here. Korah was accusing Moses and Aaron. He was after what they were called to do and what he was not called to do. And so this accusation was not just against Moses, it's against God. Now, you've got to love Moses' reaction in chapter uh, 16, verse 4. He falls on his face. And this is important because this immediately tells us the reaction of a godly man. He has seen this again and again, right? He's, he's watched Aaron, and who Aaron had a problem with Moses for a little while, with his sister Miriam, right? Miriam ends up full of leprosy and all of that. He has seen this over and over. When God's people are not content with what God has given them, there comes problems. So Moses knows that God won't put up with this. He does not allow rebellion to take place. And so Moses turns around, look at verse 7, and he makes this comment. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. I read that I thought, well, it could be said something another way, you sons of something else. (laughs) you sons of Levi. And I think he emphasizes that because this tribe was set apart of all the tribes to be those who ministered before God and for the people. It was a great honor to be a Levite. But that's not good enough. And so you see that statement and you go, wow. And I think what God is doing through Moses is he's, he's Look, he's setting aside these men of Reuben, right? He sets them aside and these 250 leaders, and he's going after probably the, 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 the core of this, which would be Korah and his family. And, and notice in verse 5 that God's instructions flow through Moses, and Korah and all of his company are called out. He goes after them, so there's this kind of setting aside of this group. He's going to deal with them. We'll watch God deal with that. But he goes after Korah. And these are the ones who spoke of holy. They want to be near God, and yet they usurp the authority of God. Notice verses 6, is in, six and 7 here that Moses says, take your censers for yourself. Well, this would be a fire pan um, Uh, There's different views of what's out there, but most likely simplistic in this probably setting here. They changed as time went on, but it was probably a simple flat pan with maybe rope handles that came on, and they put the incense in the metal pan, and there it burned, and they brought that pan, Aaron brought that pan in before God, and that was a sweet aroma before them. And so Moses says, you grab your censer pans and come out here, and we're going to meet. Moses says, you think you can waltz in the presence of God? You want to walk in the presence of God? Grab your fire pans and let's see what happens. Show up here tomorrow. And so he warns them, you have gone far enough. Two, the dangers of discontentment with a God-given role. Verses 8 through 11. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levite, it is not enough that you, that Is not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them. And that he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you. Are you seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against Well, in this set of verses, Moses is stating that the true complaint that they had against God and his servant, particularly Aaron in this place. You notice in verse 9, there's a real highlight of the lack of gratitude. You've been given this unique calling, Korah, and you're not grateful for it. You've been given a position of authority, you've been given a position to care for the things that God cares about things that picture him in this tabernacle that was made with hands, but picture something even greater. You've been given this job, but it's not good enough. And Moses highlights this sinful lack of gratitude. You'll notice in verse 10 that exposes the real complaint that you want to come into the presence of God. You want to do what Aaron does. I think Moses is saying your jealousy That you stated back in verse 3 that's exposed there is the root problem. And so you can't stand it. You now are seeking the priesthood. See, people can't hide their hearts from the Lord. We can't do that. Our, Our sin is filleted in a sense. Our hearts are filleted in a sense before God. And clearly this was a covenant of power and authority. And it represents a serious sin against God. And he wants to deal with it. And I want you to think about this. There is one way into the presence of God. And again, I want to say this over. That's the gospel. We come into the presence of God through Jesus Christ alone. Aaron represents that as the high priest that brings the blood of the lamb into the presence of God. They want that. God is protecting his gospel. And he's very serious about it. But God gives roles, and they're very important. And I love the roles that God gives men and women in this church. And I love watching people serve the Lord with their gifts. And, and those gifts are not to promote self. Uh, they're, they're for the betterment of the body of Christ, for the worship of God. Phillips writes this, an older man, long gone with the Lord, said this, We all have different duties. We must be intent on doing to the best of our ability what God has given us to do. The gifts that men have are gifts, and they're and not to be taken pride in or used for personal advancement, but for the good of the body, the church. And since this is also, it is u- both useless and dangerous for one member to cover another person's place or gift, or in so doing, he both trespasses beyond bounds and at the same time neglecting his own. To see things in this light is to come to a true assessment of one's importance. We all have a part to play, only a part. And if God has appointed us not only a small part, but maybe an unobtrusive part, then we must content ourselves with it and realize that only in gladness except it will true happiness and peace and wholesomeness ever be found. I really like that. This is his commentary on uh, Numbers chapter 16. We will lose contentment when we try to serve where God has not called us to serve. Now let's be careful there. People go, well, boy, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to serve anywhere. (laughs) No, no. God has given each of us a gift. How are you serving the body of the Lord Jesus Christ? What role do you have? That's God has given that. It may be unintrusive, right? Most of the body parts are covered up. That's okay. We accept that. We accept what God has given us. And there we find service to the Lord. Israel struggled with this over and over and over. When you study the history of Israel, if you're reading through the Bible and you get into the history books of the nation of Israel, you see murders and immoralities and king after king getting killed by family members and just amazing abuse of power and jealousy and envy throughout them. Just before Nebuchadnezzar is coming over the wall in the southern tribes, Jeremiah says this in chapter 45, verse 5. But you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. He's warning them, you you still think you're building a kingdom, and Nebuchadnezzar's outside that wall, and he's coming over there. But they're still seeking power, even at that time. Power does amazing things to people. Third, envy and jealousy lead to defiancy. Look at verses 12 through 15 with me. Then Moses sent a summons to Datham and Abraham and the sons of Elab. But they said, we will not come up. Ooh. Verse 13. It is not enough that you have brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey. Are you hearing, hearing this? It's not enough that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness. But you would also lord it over us. Indeed, you have brought us into a land, you you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of the fields and the vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. That's a huge problem. I have not taken a single donkey from them. Nor have I done harm to any of them. Well, here in verse 12, we see just a heel sticking in defiance, don't we? You remember this as you raised your children, right? The first time they tried to figure out, ah, I'm not going to do it, mom, you know, or dad. Whoa, <laughs> uh, that's rebellion. And God, God deals with rebellion all the time. He won't let it go. And this rebellion is clarified, in here. and here's what chapter 15 was about, this willful, defiant sin. And now it's being put on display. We are not coming up. We're not listening to you. We don't care what God's told you. We're not going to do it. It's full-out rebellion. And then notice what rebellion does. Rebellion turns good into evil and evil into good. Now Egypt has become the promised land. Do you see that? How twisted sin takes you when you live in sin and you lie to yourself long enough, you start believing it. Man, the leeks and the onions were great. Yeah, so were the stripes on your back. But you lie to yourself. And this happens all the time, even today. People lie to themselves about something and they get themselves into, worked up into something and they go back to sin. They go back to something that enslaves them thinking that it has something to offer them. Sin twists and distorts your thinking. The prophet Isaiah said to the northern tribes, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's bitter. We're going to go back to where we are slaves? That's the promised land? And see, this rebellion now comes to the point of no return. That statement exposed their hearts and God's coming with judgment. He judges severely rebellion. John wrote in John chapter 3, verse 19, he said this, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. God often floods light on it, and that's what he's doing in this passage. He floods light on this evil, desirous, of uh, uh, jealousy and envious desire of position. And he shows that their minds are twisted. So this attack on Moses was, was founded that he did not bring them into the promised land. Isn't, isn't that what it says? You didn't bring us in. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say they came up and said, no, we're not going to go in? It was them who rejected God. This is why they're in the wilderness. And look, their sin has blinded them so much they can't remember that they said, no, we're not going to go in. See, they sought to blame Moses when, in fact, they were really blaming God. They were rejecting his word, and there was an unwillingness to believe his word. Notice in verse 15 we see the mediator speak, right? Right? Aaron's an intercessor. He goes in, carries the blood in there. But Moses is an intercessor. They're all types of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're human types. The better one is coming. But there, now he speaks. He's had it. He knows what rebellion is. He knows what God does. I, I'm trying to warn you. I don't want this to happen to you, what we've seen repeatedly now. But now I'm angry. And he says to the Lord, don't regard their offering. That's a powerful statement. If you don't have an offering before God... You are not reconciled with God. And though this was temporary in the Old Testament because it's all pointing to the greater lamb, the greater blood, the greater high priest, right? It's all pointing towards something. This was the way they had temporary reconciliation with God. And if you don't have that, you will be cut off. And so Moses says, don't accept them. They're teaching a false gospel. And he's pointing that out. And so he says, I... I don't know these people. Do not bring this. It's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew. He says, look, I don't know you. Depart from me, you wicked, you doers of lawlessness. Depart from me. I don't know you. And I think Moses is uh, saying that in a sense, and I think that's pointing forward to what our Lord says to the same group, religious people who think they have a right to be in the presence of God on their own merit. Fourth, there's a rebellion in the presence of God. Rebellion in the presence of God we really see in this text. Here, 16 through 24, follow along. Moses said to Korah, you and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and and they, along with Aaron. Each of you take his fire pan and put incense on it, and each of you bring his incense before the Lord, 250 fire pans. Also you and Aaron and each bring his fire pans. So they took; they each took their own censer and put fire on it, and laid the incense on it. And they stood at the door of the tent of the meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus, Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the door uh, at the doorway to the tent of the meetings. And the glory of the Lord appeared to the congregation. I wrote in my Bible. Oh no, <laughs> we've seen this before. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Not to them, Moses and Aaron, saying, separate yourself from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces and said, oh God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sinned, will you be angry with the entire congregation? Look at the difference of what they're doing. Look what they're doing with their God-given authority versus what the other group is doing with theirs. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Datham, and Abiram.'" And then Moses arose and went to Datham and Briam and to the elders of Israel and followed him. That's as far as I wanted to go. So here Moses has had enough with his rebellion. The challenge is called. Korah has and his company have come out. They're putting a test to them. They've got their their incense. They 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 have their fire pans ready to go. This would be this sweet aroma, what's pleasing to God. So they all have this uh, this incense going. Whose aroma is going to be pleasing to God? You can see this happening. And it seems Korah's envy and jealousy has made him stupid. It's amazing, isn't it? He has this false confidence. Why would you do this? You have seen what God has done to this nation when they rise up against his servants. And I think that's what what sin of envy and jealousy does. It causes you to have a false confidence to go and do something God has not told you to do. And now the glory of the Lord is showing up. But Moses and Aaron, notice they reflect just the opposite. Their humility is on display. They mediate immediately. You can't miss this in this passage. And, And what I love about this is this teaches me what the Lord does. The Bible tells us that We were, this is a hard term for people who are coming to Christ to hear. The Bible says we were children of wrath. Now, that doesn't mean we were a bunch of angry children. That means we were the target of God's wrath before we were saved. That's that's what that statement means in Ephesians 2. And so we realize that God is extremely angry with sin. He knows the cost of it will be his son's death. So God always reacts to sin. He will react to it. He is a patient and kind God leading us to repentance, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. But he always deals with sin. And so when I read this and I saw Moses and Aaron run into this intercessory, to this mediation point, you see the Lord Jesus Christ do the same but more effectively and perfect, right? He runs and stands in the gap between God's wrath and us. And he dies in our place. And I've said this a thousand times from this pulpit. God judged him as though he committed our sins. He put his full wrath of, uh, of, against sin and he put it on his son in my place. And that's why we love biblical theology because we know Moses and Aaron are not Christ. We know they're types. They're sinners that need to be saved by the one that they're reflecting, by the one that they're types of that is coming. And yet the one who is coming can do, only do, fulfill only what they can't, and they, he can stand in the final gap for us. And our Lord Jesus, never forget this. This helps you in every aspect of your life. My Lord Jesus stood in the gap for me. I, I am the complainer, I'm the murmurer, I'm the jealous and envious. I, that's us, right? That's us sinners in this text. And our Lord Jesus says, I'll take the wrath for Scott. And he steps in the gap for us. Here, these men were not repentive. Verse 19, the Bible says, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. This isn't going to end well. There's no repentance. There's two men doing everything they can to stand in the gap. But there's a holy God and there's willful, defiant sinners and they're standing on the same ground. This has everything of the picture of the future of the great white throne judgment of God. Sinners standing before a holy God and God about to judge. You cannot get to God outside of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And yet there will be lines of people who will try to do that, that'll fall in a judgment of God. So there's no hiding behind your religious posterity. There's, there's no getting around that God looks into the heart, and these men refuse to repent. And when that glory of the Lord showed up, you would have thought that everybody hits their knees. But you cannot repent on your own. That is a work of God. Their hearts are hardened against God. God has to plunge that faith. Look, you, you say, well, I came to Jesus. Yeah, you did, and God did it. We don't always know that. We tell people, believe in Jesus, right? We tell people to put their faith in Jesus. Adam, no problem with that statement. But we better quick to tell them what God did so they'll become worshipers, right? And then we learn that God, you did it. You gave me faith. And at that point, I humbled, you humbled me, and I humbled myself because you had given me faith to believe in you, and I repented of my sins. Faith has to precede repentance, but that's not here in this text, is there? See, God will have his one-way gospel. You're not going to get around it. It's all or nothing with God. You come his way. Or you don't come at all. There's no room for the pride of man in the presence of God. There is no room for the pride of man in the presence of God. He will judge that. And we see this on display here. Five, standing firm in the midst of the rebellion. Look at verses 25 through 35. These are fascinating verses. Then Moses arose and went to Datham and Abiram, with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing that belongs to them, or you will be swept away in all of their sin. Wow, that's quite terms there, isn't it? So they got back around from the dwellings of Korah and Datham and Ibrahim, and Dathan and Ibrahim came out and stood at the doorway of their tents along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. What a statement there. Verse 29, if these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. So how are they going to (laughs) die? He's saying if these guys just die of natural causes, hey, I'm a liar. I've usurped God. I shouldn't be in this position. But, verse 30, and this is a, a large conjunction here, isn't it? If the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all of theirs and they descend alive into Sheol, then you understand that these men have spurned the Lord. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up in their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all of the belongings to, uh, to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed up over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who was around them fled at their outcry for they said the earth may swallow us up because you're jealous too. And fire also came forth from the Lord to consume the 250 men who were offering an incense. You forgot about those guys, didn't you? God didn't. He just sent a bolt down and took care of them. This is an amazing passage, isn't it? Judgment has fallen on the rebellious, right? And and this rebellion against God has brought this about, and and it's almost unfathomable what happens, right? You, you can't create this stuff. God, the creator of his own world, has authority over his own world. and When he says, earth, open up, it opens up. And it took in exactly who were the rebellious. No more, no less. Because God has control of these things. I think there's a clear picture of hell here, isn't there? See, there's... Two people will stand before the throne of God someday. It will be those who will enjoy the presence of God for eternity, who came through the one narrow gate, the Lord Jesus Christ, and came into the presence of God only through Christ alone. That's one group. And then there's another group that has tried every door possible known to man. And there is another door for them. And it is hell. And that's that's pictured here, isn't it? Notice that the terminology. They go down what? Alive. Hell is, hell is not a annihilation. I know there's a lot of groups that love to teach annihilationism. Because they, they feel, well, you know, I can't get around the text. Yeah, the I guess there's a hell, but let's make hell a little less. So let's let's just say they're annihilated. And they go against the teaching of Jesus, who says they'll die eternally and there will be gnashing of teeth and wailing and hell is a terrible, terrible place. See, it's for those who rebel against God and refuse to come His way. That's what hell is for. And there's a clear picture of it. I thought about this and I wondered about the stress that Moses was under in this confrontation. Moses is a shepherd. He shepherded his father-in-law's sheep He shepherded this difficult group of people. I I imagine this confrontation was some of the deepest stress that he'd ever been under. He knows God is a holy God. He has spent time with God. He knows who he is. He knows the requirements, how you come to God and how you don't come to God. And everything he's seen, there is a rejection of God. And he knows judgment's coming. And he wants to rescue them. And he gets in front of them. And he tries to mediate, and yet they say, we're not coming up. I imagine that stress. Look at verse 28. I think this is a very key verse. Moses said, by this you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is none of my doing. I think that's a really key verse. Moses said, this isn't me that's doing this. This is God. You've rejected Him. He's going to deal with you. And I'm going to be shown that I've been just doing what God called me to do. You failed to do what God called you to do. You wanted something he had not given you. And that caused you to desire the presence of God in a foreign way to God, a strange fire to God, and he rejects you. But I have come his way. And I've done what he's asked. And after Moses' prediction, right, because he gives a basic prediction that they're going to die in this unique way, They still spurn the the Lord, it says, verse 30. They spurn the Lord. We we don't care what he says. And it's a clear proof that Moses was God's chosen leader and they were impostors. And this happens all the time, right? uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? Let's, let's, Let's build some altars. Let's see what God's great and which one isn't. Maybe your God's asleep. We better cry louder. Oh, by the way, when we get to mine, dump water all over it. Drown it. He he just shows who God is and who God isn't. There's a way to come to him, and he can can overcome all obstacles when we come his way. We see God do this even in the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, right? Don't mess with God. Don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Do things God's way because he won't put up with it. He knows what's best for us. It's terrible for us to try to do things our way. It is the worst. He wants us to do things His way. And there's great blessing and comfort, and we experience the depth of the kindness of God when we repent and we do things His way. When we don't, we suffer. Now, as children of God, God is kind to us, and even as children of God, we do sin against Him, don't we? we have a means to come back to him. Christ died for that sin. And so we can say, Lord Jesus, you died for that sin. You forgave me for that. Thank you for your blood atonement on the cross for that sin, the way I spoke, the way I acted, whatever that was. Name that sin and say, God, your son died for that, and I want your forgiveness because he hung on the cross for that and his blood washed over that. So we have that ability to do that. And that breaks down that rebellion. But look, if you don't have that, and you're just mad at God because He doesn't give you what you want, you can't come the way you want, you will suffer under His judgment. See, society doesn't like this, right? this sermon never got out on the news, boy, (laughs) they'd be picketing us out front like in half the other sermons I preach, right, on marriage and gender and everything else. See, the world doesn't like this. It doesn't fit their system. It doesn't fit their designer God. If you're going to have a God, he has to be a designer God, and he dresses in a rainbow flag. Did I just say that? <laughs> That's what's happening, right? But God is a holy God, and he won't suffer attacks for very long, right? The writer of Hebrews says it this, chapter 10, verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Now, we don't fear God like they should have, right? I trust if you're a believer, you don't fear God this way. We have a reverential awe for God, right? He is God and we are man. There's a reverential awe. But there's a fear of God that should be innate in all of us. He knows our breath. He knows the last one we'll take. He's numbered our days before there were one. He has power and authority over all people. All will fall under His judgment someday, and so we realize it is a terrifying thing for those who do not know God through Jesus Christ to fall underneath His judgment. And there's nothing like the rejection of God's divine plan of salvation that will bring His strictest and most powerful judgment upon people. And those who reject Jesus Christ as the only way will see the full wrath of God unmitigated someday. And we fear for them, right? This is why we're preaching sermons on rescuing people. We want to be a part of what God's doing. We want to rescue people. We want to preach the gospel. We want to invite people to church. We want to love them, care for them, point them to Jesus Christ alone. It's their only hope. If not, they're going to fall into the hands of a living God. And though our theology tells us that God alone saves, we plead with people to know Jesus, don't we? It's the only hope. And so here we have Moses. He's representing Christ as the mediator. We have Aaron representing Christ as the interceding role here as the high priest. And yet they're rejecting them. They were the way to God. They were the types. And yet they reject them. And so God in number 16 has given us a clear understanding of biblical theology as this passage points divinely towards the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the same time, it describes the judgment of those who reject that finished work. I never saw that before in this text before. It's teaching us of what's coming. God is not some higher power sinful man can just be comfortable with. He's not that God. He's a living God. He's good and kind and he's gracious, but he will not be trifled with. And you see this. If you reject the one way to come to me, the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you reject that, you get my wrath. Six, the rebellion. I've got to hurry here. Um, the rebellion turned into a memorial of warning. The rebellion turned into a memorial of warning. This is fascinating. never saw this before. Verse 36. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, that he should take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze. That will tell you what was left, right? There's nothing but smoke and, and fire, right? For they are holy. Anything brought before God is holy, right? And you scatter the burning coals abroad. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered sheets for a plating of the altar, since they did not, since they, since they did present them before the Lord, and they are holy, and they shall be a for a sign for the sons of Israel. So oh, Eliezer, the the priest, took the bronze censers which the men who were burned had offered, and they hammered them out as a plating for the altar, as a reminder for the sons that no layman who is not of the descendant of Aaron, should come near to burn incense before the Lord so that he will not become like Korah in his company just as the Lord has spoken to him through Moses. Well, from then on, every Israelite who approached with their sacrifice, guess what was on top of that altar? (laughs) What a reminder. I, I thought about this today as I was finishing this of a dad and a son saying, son, you see that red hot blazing hot metal plate that's over the altar? That teaches us, do not come on your own righteousness to God. Come his way. See the lamb on top of that? See the blood that was offered on our behalf? That's the way we come. This represents all those who didn't come that other way. And, and, and what a teaching point that would have been for those youngsters and for this nation. To realize that you want to approach the presence of God, you approach Him my way. Or you get flattened. You must come His way. Only the believer priest can enter into this presence. I love 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a holy Uh, excuse me, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. See, now we're believer priests. Isn't that a beautiful thing, isn't it? Right? We now, because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. We have all the... the gorgeous stones and the funny hats and everything that was dressed up there pointing to the uniqueness of him and the glory of God, reflecting the glory of God. We now reflect the glory of Christ and we are now royal priesthood, meaning we have a kingly descent, King Jesus. We are of his family now. We are now priests who can walk into the presence of God because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And now we come into his presence and you and I can come into his presence when we're driving the car on I-95 Lord, my heart is heavy today. I hurt over something. And I can bring my prayers and offerings to the Lord and I can come right into His presence because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ because now I'm a believer priest. Because I came God's way. And God honors that. The last thought is the sinful heart of mankind and a high priest who runs to rescue. These last verses are quite interesting. I've got to go fast, but Follow along with me. But on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Are you kidding me? (laughs) That, are you kidding me, is not in the original text. That was me. Saying, you are the ones who caused the death of the Lord's people. Oh, no. And it came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned towards the tent of the meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared Oh, no. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their faces. There they go again. That's their calling, to fall on their faces before God's people. Boy, I read that this week, and I thought, Oh, Lord, that's our calling as elders. We fall on our faces before our God on behalf of your people. Moses said to Aaron, verse forty-six: Take your censers and put in it fire from the altar, and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for the wrath has gone forth from the Lord and the plague has begun. And then Aaron, and as is, uh, and Aaron took it as Moses had spoken. Now look at this phrase: and ran into the midst of the assembly before them, and the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense. He put on the incense and made atonement for the people, and he took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700, besides those who died on account of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of the meeting, for the plague had been checked. Well, you just can't help but go, Did you guys not see what happened yesterday? This grim demise. This is a grim demise. People were swallowed up alive. I don't know what that's like to die swallowed up alive like that. I mean, some of our fears and our dreams, right? You know, you're you're stuck in an elevator or whatever, right? Moses and Aaron. You know, you think that would have ended it for them. I mean, maybe they laid their head down that night. Oh Lord, thank you for, thank you for taking care of that. We're so grateful that was a very stressful time. They wake up the next morning; it's back going again. And so here, and I think what's so sad is they blame Moses and Aaron for the death of the other people. They, they're blaming him. Elliot Benz on his commentary on this said this, The people make accusations that Moses and Aaron, in order to vindicate their own pos- position, that had caused the death of those who opposed them. They're, they're trying to vindicate their own position. Thus quickly was any sense that they might have had of the judgment of God upon them, therefore reality dissipated. And with their complaining spirit renewed. Reality left them. Reality is God just swallowed up all those people. And you are not living in reality because of your sin. You say, why do people just repeat sin and stay in it and can't get out of it and can't get out of it? They, reality escapes them. The sin is greater to them than the joy of Repentance. And so this is a reaction from sinful people. They recognize the judgment of God. They they may have say somebody may say, Well, I, I, have, some par- I have some I have some I yeah, I didn't maybe do things right. I could have done things better. But soon their attitudes harden and all of a sudden they find themselves shrugging off the truth, and this doesn't apply to me. I'm right, you're wrong, and now we're on. And that's what happens. So these people are grumbling It leads God to swiftly react. And that's what you see. He does not waste any time. And yet again, here comes his glory in verse 45. And now comes the pronouncement of a destroying of another generation. I mean, an entire generation of people. He's going to wipe them out. And in 46, the deadly plague is breaking out. People are dying. And Moses and Aaron quickly react in their humility, in their intercessory way. and, and, And by the grace of God, and these men stepping in the way of the wrath of God and sinners stand in front of them, and the plague is checked. That's Jesus, isn't it? And if it wasn't for Jesus going to the cross and standing in the way of us, we all go to hell, don't we? And I love this. Yes, it's sad. 14,700 people died. But look at verse 48. I want to just end with this. He ran into the midst of the assembly. And he took his stand, a little further down, took his stand between the dead and the living. Boy, that's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus ran to the cross. When we study his life, remember we went through the book of Mark not too many years ago. Nothing could deter him from his hour. Over and over, he said, this is not my hour, not my hour. They're trying to do things right, trying to get being king and all these other things. And then all of a sudden, he says, this is my hour. And there's Judas, and there's the temple police, and they're going to arrest me, and I'm going to go die, because my hour has come. And he runs, and he stands in the gap for all of us. And his blood washes back to Adam, and it washes forward to the last believer on this earth. And that's our Jesus, isn't it? He stands there. And so when we study Moses and Aaron, these are, these are humans who are pointing to a greater meteorological meteoro position, a greater intercessor, a greater high priest. It's all pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't have time because I went late, but you can look at Hebrews and just go in there, go into Hebrews and put high priest in the book of Hebrews and look through passage after passage where the Bible says Jesus is the greater high priest. He's a suffering high priest. He's a sympathetic high priest. He's one who brings his own blood into the most holy of holy so we can enter into the presence of God. That's that's our Lord Jesus. And so as I close, don't forget God protects his gospel. Because it's the only way people can be saved. And this is a picture of the one way to God. It's through the high priest. He only gave that to one man, the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't come any other way. Father, thank you for this reminder. I am so encouraged by what you taught me in this. I, I have a humble heart in so many ways as I think about how you, Lord Jesus, ran into the midst of the wrath of God. The ground opened up. The earth shook. Skies went dark. Lord, we see that scene, and we're going to revisit that soon here as we work our way to Easter time. But there, standing between the wrath of God and His elect, His children, is the perfect Lord Jesus Christ. Interceding. Dying. Atoning justifying, declaring righteous those who their faith alone is in Him. And the wrath of God is no longer on us. And I praise You, Lord. The Bible tells us that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us that there's no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we thank You that we do not fear the world and the earth swallowing us up. We do not fear the great white throne judgment. We know that you'll separate the sheep and the goats, and we know we are your sheep now, not because of us, not because of who we are, not because of decisions we even made. It's because Christ died for our sins, and you called us out of the world. And we give you praise for that. That we are now your flock, and you love us, and you still rescue us when we stray. And you still discipline us when we've been in a place we should not be because you love us. And we thank you for that. Father, we would be remiss if we did not ask you to keep rescuing through this church, through individuals. Many of us have family members and loved ones and neighbors and people that we know if you return today, if judgment falls on this world, they will be swallowed up. So God, give us a fervency for evangelism. Give us a desire to share the gospel with people. Maybe maybe someone we've shared it with repeatedly. Maybe we may not be afraid to go back again and rehearse those great truths and tell them of the great things that God has done for us. And we beg you, God, to continue to rescue people. Don't let them fall under your judgment, Lord. Use us, Lord. May we... Shine your light even through our crackpots. May you draw straight lines through crooked strips. And Lord, we'll give you the glory. We pray in Jesus' name.